Hello, I'm Chris. And I'm Sean. And this is Monsters and Mythos, a podcast where we take a look at the monsters and races of Dungeons and Dragons and compare them to their folkloric and mythological counterparts. Today, we are taking a look, at least from a mythological folklore side, a large body. <laughs> Honestly, didn't realize how much I'd end up finding. But we are going to be looking at chimera-type monsters, so creatures that have more than one uh, animal to make them up. And I know we discussed a couple of them, and as that rabbit hole just went, it just kept expounding. Oh yeah, so uh, yeah, like we, like you said, uh, we've got like a plethora of interesting creatures here this week. Lots of cool, like classic encounter vibes, though, for sure. And this should be a good one. Oh, definitely. It's going to be nice to get a good idea of some beasts to throw at your players and to really beef up uh, world building. Um, so with that, we will begin with Sean's portion as uh, we get an idea of some of the monsters we'll be discussing and break it down from there. Okay, so let's uh, let's get right into it and and start with a a classic and well known creature throughout many realms, uh, not just D and D, the Griffin. Uh, so, what is a Griffin exactly? Uh, this beast's body uh, resembles that of a muscular lion, but its head and front legs are that of a great eagle and uh, long golden wings outstretch from its back. This beast roams uh, roams large swaths of mountainous uh, or forested areas. It considers its territory with a a small to medium-sized pride, making nests upon the highest cliffs and trees. Aside from being an uh, exceptional hunters, uh, somewhat intelligence, and uh, masters of aerial combat, a trait that keeps them often kind of like at odds with the civilized local populace is their love for horse meat. Um, Almost always attacking horses on sight, disregarding the riders when they can, uh, but you could see how an infestation of griffins may make trade and travel slow and difficult in any region. Uh, another cool trait of griffins that they have possessed throughout the many editions of D&D is that they are uh, notoriously difficult and costly to train and equip as mounts. But should you get one young enough, with time and training, some luck, and a fuck ton of horse meat, <laughs> you, uh, you may be able to train it as a mount, and uh, what mounts they make. Only ever bonding with one rider, fast and ferocious, loyal to a fault, often willing to fight to the death over the well-being of their handler. Uh, The only downside being their diet of choice, really. Uh, So you could see why many in the fantasy realms take a lot of time and money uh, to acquire and train them. So, uh, moving on to another couple of beasties now. Uh, These two are actually uh, mentioned in a few places as being another favored prey of the griffin, aside from horses. So, that's kind of weird. But... um, so uh, we're talking, of course, about the hippocampus, sometimes the hippocamp, and the hippogriff. 
the hippocampus being described as a creature with the head and four quarters of a horse uh, with a single tapered fish-like tail in place of hindquarters and uh, you know, a fin replacing its uh, horse-like mane. While a lot of these, uh, 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 while a lot of the aquatic races seek to um, dom, not dominate, domesticate. Sorry, um, they seek to domesticate these creatures to serve as mounts and other things. Most of the time, this is just convincing them to cooperate, as the uh, hippocampus or maybe like hippocampi, I don't know how that works. Uh, they, you know, they are about as intelligent as, say, like the average humanoid. So it's less like uh, you know, subduing them and breaking them and whatnot and more just kind of convincing them to help the community. Uh, so, uh, But on the other hand, the hippogriff on the other side, uh, this beast has the torso and hindquarters of a horse combined with the, fo- uh, the forelegs and wings and head of a giant eagle. Uh, these voracious omnivores will hunt humanoids as readily as any other meal. And uh, these beasts are very territorial, defending their preferred hunting and grazing areas with unusual ferocity. Typically traveling in small to medium herds, hippogriffs like uh, griffins are known to be exceptional mounts. However, also like griffins, it requires a lot of time and resources to train a uh, hippogriff uh, and to train it to be a proper mount, let alone obtain one young enough to train and and you know that kind of actually varies upon the editions in the more modern editions they are all a little easier to train after obtaining but at any rate a properly trained hippogriff mount is both loyal and reliable uh, beyond compare so now uh for this next beastie we'll have to to set aside the notions of mounts for a moment uh, as we bring up the manticore this, this large magical beast is a monster in every sense of the word. Uh, the head of a humanoid with the body of a lion upon which spring forth some very dragon-like wings. Spiky barbs run down the creature's back, and at the end of its long tail is a cluster of deadly spikes. Often roaming and hunting in packs, or sometimes aided by, by making alliances with the more you know, powerful creatures, or even tribes of humanoids like orcs, uh, these creatures do what they must to survive. Uh, not particularly bright, but smart enough to converse. So whether hunting prey for themselves or, or some evil master who treats them well, perhaps serving as a hunting companion to giants or hobgoblins or, or even guarding something's lair, uh, this, the versatility of this uh, large evil monstrosity uh, who has been known to crave uh, on occasion human flesh uh, you know, is pretty vast. So, moving back into some awesome mounts, one in particular, to kind of finish off this little segment of beasties, at least on my end, let's talk the Pegasus. Uh, Pegasi? I don't know. I still don't know how that works. This creature, of course, has the look of a horse, but has two large feathered wings, and both its coat and its feathery wings are a pure white. So before a Pegasus can bear a rider, it must be trained. However, the, the process of domesticating a Pegasus, or I guess Pegasi, however they, want to, <laughs> however they word that, uh, it, it is a bit easier than the standard mount. You know, it comes with its share of difficulties, but essentially kind of like the hippocamp or hippocampus, hippocampi, 
one of the one of those. <laughs> uh, the Pegasus is as intelligent as the average humanoid, and often domesticating one is just kind of convincing it to cooperate. You know, convincing usually being along like good aligned causes or uh, or dedication to good aligned heroes. And, you know, not taking the uh, bond between Mount and Ryder lightly, as often the bond between the two, uh, once it develops, is li lifelong. So uh, these are highly sought-after mounts indeed, and uh, they, as they are swift and reliable, uh, being faster and less temperamental than the other aerial mounts, kind of like the Griffins, but matching their loyalty and commitment to their riders. So... Uh, has any of the beasties I have touched on come uh, pretty close to what uh, you just you found in the uh, IRL? <laughs> oh yeah, they got the good general uh, basics of all of them. Just gets more expounded as you have more tales to tell. Right, you know, a, a, a stat block is is a tale in and of itself, but you know, but it but it's one that's hard to convey. It's best you know looked at solo. I think you know. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's all I've got on our our kind of almost mostly mount based theme today. It was kind of cool. Uh, pretty excited to hear about uh, some of this lore, though. So with that, I'll turn the mic over to you. All right. So yes, as I said, I definitely get into a uh, more limited in terms of the D and D side, just because it's well. D&D. &D. They're not going to have the plethora of creatures that have come into existence with cultures of developed lore, but still amazing creatures to discuss. So, on my end, we will begin with the Manticore. So, the original Manticore is considered a Persian monster. Uh, however, its tail comes through Greece. Uh, it was described as a king said that, or not a king, a scribe from Greece went to India and claimed that he watched a king receive a manticore as a gift. And from that, uh, this man's name was Zetsia, and he had a book, Indica, based on India. And it was in there that he made this claim. Now, the way the manticore was described is it has blue eyes and is human-faced. However, it has three rows of teeth. It has the body of a lion, including the feet and claws. As described, it has a scorpion-like tail. However, it can also have two rows of stings, each says it's about a Greek foot long, but the sizes, of course, change depending on the tail. And they can shoot out and then be replenished. It didn't have wings originally. However, as more iterations came, they eventually developed wings. And they liked the taste of human flesh. In fact, their primary form of hunting is they would lay down inside a grass with just the face showing and talk or sing and get a group of men to come near it where it would then absolutely destroy them just tearing their flesh and feasting upon their remnants and that is why manticore actually came to be 
uh, means man eater. So, and Pliny the Elder in his book of natural history uh, believed it was real. However, he placed it more in Ethiopia, which he really did like to put a lot of creatures in Ethiopia. In fact, a lot of the old scholar beast theories seem to. I mean, as we discussed in the Gorgon episode, uh, the one guy who wrote about the Gorgon and described them as more of a cabablapas placed them also in Ethiopia. It was kind of their catch-all for wondrous creatures. The name Manticore kind of does have a misnomer. It really shouldn't have been called that based upon the Greek wording. However, that is what came to us. And honestly, I think it still fits. And no matter what they call it, seeing that sort of creature would be scary as hell. Uh, one thing is that it did say that the stingers were unable to pierce an elephant hide. That's the only material that was hard enough to actually stop them. Uh, anybody who's played Magic the Gathering has probably seen a Manticore card. I mean, I had them when I played in my deck. And the beast did not have that human face. In fact, they seem to use more of a full lion face. However, the original tale says it was man-faced, and as you look through art depictions, especially uh, through the medieval ages and everything else, they've emphasized human face, sometimes not even putting a scorpion tail or a stinger tail, but a cat's tail, but a full head of a human. And that did really... Uh, I, I don't like the human face. I can understand it as a hunting tactic, but I think the lion face looks cooler, <laughs> personally. Yeah, yeah I, just, I think I agree there. But the human face adds, like, a kind of creepy element to it. And also the the stinger, like, tail was kind of different, kind of like how it's like a scorpion tail, like a, the the tail of, like, a, the manticore in the D&D version almost looks like a like a spiky mace or something, but, you know, it does, like, shoot these, like, spines out, but it's very more, like, porcupine-y rather than, like, poisonous, at least in D&D. So it's, like, it's kind of different. I like, I like the difference there. Oh, and, and very venomous, I mean. And the fact that it would hunt numerous humans all at once. Uh, now... One thing that likes to do is people like to associate uh, myths from other cultures and say, you know, it's sort of like this. And one of the ones that I found was Nerissima, which means man lion in Sanskrit. And it was the fourth avatar of the Hindu god Vishnu. Now, this really doesn't look too much like a manticore, as a manticore had a human face so possibly full head but at the very least face with the lion's body however narasinga had a human body with a lion head <laughs> so a little bit of a reversal uh but still a really cool design especially as we have discussed the minotaur before instead of a bull head it's a lion and that would scare the hell out of me a lot more i don't know about you <laughs> 
Oh yeah, for sure. Predator, you know, at, at least you know, maybe that one wants to eat me, or you know, the Minotaur just wants to squishy, possibly, or bury its axe. I don't know, but something about being eaten, like I'm not a fan. Oh, definitely not. Uh, from there, we can move on to the Pegasus. Um, I did briefly mention Pegasus back in the Medusa Gorgon episode as the parentage of Pegasus is pretty much considered to be Medusa along with Poseidon as the father if you follow the Ovid tale, which had Medusa as being a beautiful woman who Poseidon then raped inside of Athena's temple where she was considered to have become pregnant and then hold that pregnancy until Perseus came and cut off her head and from her neck sprout Pegasus which really is kind of a disturbing image of a winged horse coming from the neck of a human-sized body, you would almost assume. <laughs> but very much, you would hope, was bigger. But uh, the biggest... Sorry, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. but yeah, I agree. It's a weird thing to... It's a weird thing to just birth a horse in general, let alone a winged horse, let alone from your recently severed head hole. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Now, there wasn't a lot about Pegasus uh, in tales. The big one about him was from the tale of Bellerophon, who was the man who actually killed what we're considering the namesake of all creatures where that blend two or more species of the Chimera. And he used Pegasus in order to remain at a distance from this fire-breathing uh, creature. After that, there wasn't a whole lot. Uh, however, Pegasus was a constellation and art used and depicted just because it's a very beautiful looking thing. A horse that can fly with wigs upon its back. And it became used for logos, heraldry. Uh, I mean... I, it just came to my head, but what was it? Uh, a movie company uses a Pegasus. Uh, try something, and you know the wings are flaring out. Oh uh, yeah, well, like Olympia. I want to say Olympia or something, but you might be right. Try something. I don't know. I I do recall seeing it though. It's got to be out there. It's one of those you've seen so many movies, especially that one, which I think came out more in the 90s when I was a kid. And it, it, it just, the image still hits with you, but you can't name the damn company. Yeah, for sure. Even though it's probably on every VHS tape ever made. <laughs> now, the thing is, is I started with those two because for me, those are the short two. Uh we next move into the griffin. The griffin having the body of a lion and the head and four parts of an eagle. Some depictions have the four legs being eagle-like. Others have them lion-like. But as with uh, 
the D&D side, they were considered intelligent. However, they were also greedy. They loved to hoard gold and were very protective of it. And they were enemies of horses. I don't know why, but one consideration is that there was a group of Cyclopean people called Aramisapiens who would try to steal their gold. And so... They rode in on horses, grabbed the gold, and get out. So Griffins developed a taste for horse meat because if you kill the horse, man's not moving very fast. Uh, Pliny also took Griffins and put them in Ethiopia, whereas Cetius took uh, the Griffin and put it in India. And one of thing that comes from that is the idea of the manticore and the griffin being opposite and natural enemies very uh yin yang type the griffin being the noble honor and loyal whereas the manticore representing more darker primal desires which really does create a very cool image in at least my head uh and really the whole thing with enemy of horses comes came in the 7th century CE from uh, Isidore Seville. Uh, so getting into more of a Christian idea. So he may have had another reason for it, but there's not really a strong case. Uh, one thing that's actually interesting is the idea that the griffin came as a result of people discovering dinosaur fossils within the Gobi Desert. Um, they found fossils of a creature that we now label uh, Protoceratops, and they had bone fragments that would look like claws, although we do not think they had paws like a lion. Uh, but if all you did was find the skeletal remains, you would have absolutely no idea what the flesh would look like and they didn't have all our technology to kind of get some of the outside borders and these fossils were actually found by gold veins so you had skeletal remains right by gold and from there you get a very natural story of a gold loving hoarding creature that was part lion and with a beak mouth part eagle it was also considered a very royal creature. I mean, lion being king of the beasts and the eagle being king of the birds, mix them together, and he's king of two-thirds of all creatures, basically, or at least the ones that anybody cared about. Nobody ever created a king of the insects or something within that time. One thing that people don't know is when we discuss biblical creatures, people have heard of the behemoth, the giant uh, land roaming beast that could destroy entire populations. And as we discussed in the Tarrasque episode, it was basically a Tarrasque, but being more like the Tarrasque of D&D because as we found out the Tarrasque of mythology just as not that impressive. Yeah, France France needs to step their game up. Their their Tarrasque is super super weak sauce. Uh, from there, we also have the Leviathan, king of the sea, which we will discuss in the next episode. A type of 
sea serpent or whale, but I'm not going to get into it too much right now. Uh, but one thing that a lot of people don't know of or ever heard of is called a called a ziz, Z-I-Z. And that is because in a lot of translations, uh, where he appears, such as in Psalms 50.11 and Psalms 80.13, uh, Psalms 50.11 says, I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts are mine, uh, in like the St. James Version. However, what it should be translated as is, I know all of the birds of the mountains, and this is mine. And then Psalms 80, 13 says, the boar from the forest ravages it, and this feeds on it. However, that was also translated to wild beasts. So instead it reads as, the boar from the forest ravages it, and the wild beast feeds on it. So for modern ideas, this disappeared. However, Ziz was described as a giant griffin. Uh, in fact, it was described as being so big that some people came upon a body of water and they saw the head of a bird sitting in this water. And it just merely covered his feet, you know, and the onlookers looked at it and said, oh, it can't be that deep this creature is standing in there let us go in as well however a nearby a heavenly voice uh came out and said don't go here once a carpenter's axe fell and it took seven years for the axe to touch bottom and that's how big this was supposed to be i mean you're talking just a huge massive griffin in order for it to compete with the behemoth and the leviathan and i feel bad that it got just completely skipped we know about it because of uh jewish agadot which are pretty much uh, expansions upon jewish folklore and mythology uh it came it would include sayings it would take a passage as found in the Torah, the Receptacate, and expound upon it, build upon it. And it's also from here, the idea of Lilith being Adam's first wife prior to Eve also came about. And, yeah, I, I, I really do feel bad as is just, he gets no love. Just but, uh, dropped off and removed. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like they just said, you know, either a horrible mistranslation that never got corrected. And I haven't looked at the newer translations. I know there's much better ones than the uh, King James Version, and I hope it got put back in. It's just, it's the one I know or kind of know or have access to immediately. Uh, one thing of interest is, as I was looking at Griffins and it was discussing gold, there was a tale of... Gold digging ants in Ethiopia. And these were dog or fox sized ants that would dig up gold. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the griffin, nothing to do with the chimera. But could you imagine walking down the street and you see ants the size of a dot sound or something just walking by 
I, I don't like seeing lions of ants in my house already, much less something that big. Although you might be happy because they could be carrying gold. If it was an ant that large, my immediate instinct is to not mess around or, you know, to get out of dodge there. But at the same time, if that, you know, size of ant happened to have, you know, a, a fist-sized chunk of gold in its mandibles, you know, that is about what it would have to be carrying to get me to fuck with it, I think. <laughs> oh, most definitely. Uh, the next one I wanted to discuss was the hippogriff. Uh, we discussed part eagle, part lion. Well, the hippogriff is part horse, part eagle, uh, with the hindquarters and stuff of a horse, and then it has wings, the beak of an eagle, the head, and probably the front claws being uh, more talons than horse. And there's not too much on that. However, one of the most popular hippogriffs is actually found in the Harry Potter series uh, where they meet one and that's the one that attacks uh, Draco Malfoy and gets Hagrid fired. But it didn't really have a lot of tails, just another one of those really cool visual creatures. Uh, ended up in a lot of, especially medieval texts and heraldries, uh, right there along with the griffin and unicorn and such as that. And after that, we have the hippocampus or hippocamp. Uh, it being Greek name. Uh, actually, you know what? Before we do that, I, I did forget one. Uh, in ancient Sumerian, there was a monster called the Ansu. Uh, slight tweak on the griffin. This had the body of a griffin or an eagle and the head of a lion. And again, it was considered very smart. And there are some ancient uh, store Sumerian mythologies that include the Ansu. It did later go down, but I mean, it was considered... A creature that could breathe fire and water and it stole the tablets of destinies from Enlil and I believe it was Ninurta uh, who had to go and get them back and using trickery or whatever else that his uh, ability was able to get it so the griffin at least in some form or another has definitely made the rounds with India Greece uh, found in the Gobi Desert, which you'll find over towards Asia and in Mesopotamia with the ancient Sumerians. Now we are on the hippocampus, or hippocamp. Um, as you said, it is described as being part horse, part fish. Uh, the front parts being very horse-like and with a fish's tail. <clears throat> And it was really considered as a chariot polar for Poseidon, as well as Neptune in the Roman mythology. Not really much on land. Uh, it could come onto land, and some would describe it as continuing to just use its front uh, legs to pull it forward, and the fish tail not doing much, but it was very fast. Others would say that it could change shape and turn that tail into legs 
so that it can run on all fours like any other horse. <clears throat> Two uh, abilities it was said to have is one, control the weather, uh, especially with tsunamis and heavy waves. And in fact, when you think about some of the imagery, you probably have seen at one time or another when it shows a wave breaking, it'll sometimes show the apex of the wave being horses charging. And that could be where they got that visual thought from. Um, also said it could control weather, and that's probably because the waves come from bad weather. You don't usually get huge ship-toppling waves on a nice, bright, sunny day. It's usually when it starts to get dark and stormy that these waves really pick up up uh and this is the one that really sent me down a rabbit hole because when the hippocamp comes up again people like to associate them with a lot of other creatures and there are water horses or seahorses just all throughout uh the world uh, if you go up to Scotland, you find they have a creature called the Kelpie, which is said to be a water spirit that can shift shapes, and it will look like a horse, or it'll look like a beautiful woman, an old man, sometimes malicious, that will drag a person down into the waters and drown them. These are described as having all four legs as a horse and never described as having a fish tail. But, I mean, that's not that hard of a change to make from a homebrew DM side. Uh, imagine your party coming across a horse, seeing it just there, maybe go touch it and tame it, get stuck to it, and compelled to ride it as it races towards the water. And once it gets in pull out that fish tail and have it take off so the party really has to figure out a way to catch up to them. So that was a fun idea. Uh, Central America has a water spirit called the, and I'm going to butcher this because that's what I do, the Quiwen, uh, which is a sea-dwelling demon. And again, it's described as looking like a horse. Uh, Except this one has jaws fenced around with horrid teeth, and it eats humans. Uh, one thing that describes a lot of these horses, or especially the Kelpie, and found a lot of times in Scottish, Irish, British tales, is the legs are backwards, which would be really weird. But that's always seems to be the sign. Legs are backwards. Uh on humans, legs are backwards on creatures such as this, and that's that sign that it is evil and malevolent. Uh, also, Scotland has another one called, uh, and I did listen to a pronunciation guide. My mouth doesn't do that. The Akusi or the Augusky uh, found in Ireland, which is like a Kelpie, but a lot more vicious. Uh, one thing about the hippocamp is that it could be found in freshwater and saltwater because they didn't know there wasn't that big of a difference, uh, especially in ancient Greece. The, it could be thought that the waters from the sea somehow filtered through the land and came up as fresh springs. And those springs, of course, lead to lakes. 
and that's where you get the fresh water. So it would make that natural idea that the hippocamp, not really caring whether it was fresh water or salt water, could be in both at the same time. Nowadays, we realize that a lot of creatures can't do that. Uh, they are salt water or fresh water. Um, the bull shark could be in one of the few exceptions, but it goes through a very extreme process in order to be able to survive in fresh water, much to the chagrin of people in Australia who some have gone golfing or in a river thinking their worst thing is a crocodile and a shark eats them. Yay, Australia. Uh, but that's really some of the uh, chimera types. There's still plenty out there. We'll touch on them as we go. We didn't want a two-hour on this one topic. But uh, it, it definitely shows the spread and process. And, and one thing about something like the hippocamp is that it wasn't one of a kind. Yes, we know horse fish. However, they also had the leocampos, a fish-tailed lion. The torocampos, the fish-tailed bull. The igicacampos, the fish-tailed goat, which also came to represent the constellation of Capricorn. So they believed that the underwater had an entire realm that was just like on Earth, just more fish-like. Humans, give them fishtails. Horse, give them a fishtail. Goat, give it a fishtail. But lion, give it a fishtail. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that, and I almost forgot, but remembered, because we then get into the discussion of how you can use folklore mythology for your campaign. Now imagine you do a water scene and you have your normal water creatures. And I mean, they're scary enough and we're we're, that's what we're discussing. Next episode is sea serpents and Leviathan and the Kraken and such, but you wanna kick it up a level. Well, how scared would your players be if somehow they got attacked by a lion out on a boat. I mean, just in reality, I'd be scared pretty shitless. But you could take a lion stat block and give it a swim speed all of a sudden. Yeah, true. Kind of like make a uh, uh, combine like the uh, fish half with just about any like land predator, yeah, and and make you a, a, a a bear shark or something combo combo you know like it would uh it would stick you know and definitely some narrative thought fodder if you're uh chimerian beasts together <laughs> uh another thing you could do and to take the manticore versus griffin idea especially around india uh you can maybe give your players a choice where they side with either a griffin or manticore. Maybe they have to take out one, but not the other. They have to choose which one is going to hold realm. And if they kill the griffin, they now have gold. They have access to all this treasure. However, the manticore continues to feed on citizenry. If they kill the manticore, they might get a small reward, but they don't get a chance at the griffin's treasure. So it gives them, especially because everybody likes to play neutral anymore, 
it forces them into a lane. Are you going to save the people and ignore the gold, or are you going to take the gold at the cost of the people? And you, I think it could be a wonderful sort of uh, session zero, session one, where they're still too weak to really take out necessarily one or the other. However, it begins that journey. Perhaps you have a guy with these two, uh, from the king with these two uh, warrants in their hand, telling you that they have to choose one. And as they take the path to get to the one, where they would finally reach a level high enough to take them out, they level up along the way with smaller combats and battles until they finally get to them. Because I think the uh, Manticore rating is, what, a C3? C5? Uh, depends on the edition, but yeah, it's somewhere in that neck of the woods. <laughs> so, I mean, a team of four or five. Yeah, a, a CR3, according to the Monster Manual, for a Manticore. So, a couple of level twos, just barely at level three. It wouldn't be the hardest fight by that point, and getting to a level three is... Uh, I mean, you're killing rats, and you level up pretty quickly. <laughs> it's trying to get beyond that that gets really hard. All right. So, yeah, the, yeah and a griffin is uh, CR2. Uh, obviously not as the Ziz version, but... But uh, I like that it gives them that choice. Are they going to go for the good aspect? Attack the Manticore, save the people, and not start off with a large pile of gold? Where they can then get weapons and potions and, you know, anything the DM decides to allow them at that point? Or are they going to go for that more, what would honestly be evil, say, screw the townspeople and kill the griffin? so that they can start out with a little bit more equipment and the ability to rent their rooms and get their health potions and survive a little longer, knowing that it is then at the cost of lives as the Manticore continues to eat. Right, I like it. Started off with like a, a, a moral quandary or conundrum. You know, maybe maybe they're a bunch of shitty villagers and they deserve to be eaten you know it's all about the the setting and the narrative i guess <laughs> oh absolutely and i mean i i just like those dilemmas i don't like to be in them hint hint don't make me choose <laughs> but I, I i like to do that to other people you know do you save the guy yes well he was an asshole guess what <laughs> you know or do you let him drown because the people say he was evil? Yes, let him drown because he was evil. Well, it turns out he was actually innocent and the townspeople just didn't like him for one reason or the other, and you should have saved his life. Yeah, or the, the evil guy had the key to the burning orphanage. You know, you could have saved all those orphans if you spared him or something, you know? <laughs> oh, exactly. But yeah, that's what I've found. And that's only a cursory glance. Uh, I'm pretty sure if I would have really delved in deep and, you know, gone looking for more uh, firsthand accounts, really broke into the stories, could have found quite a bit more, especially on those creatures. Uh, but we don't want to bog it down with hour long episodes and all of that the whole purpose of our show is to give a cursory glance 
so that people understand the lore from which they are using these creatures from and ways that they could possibly take it and keep it true to the mythology found because a lot of people get confused. They think that what they've seen in movies, TV shows, cartoons, or in games is the representation of these creatures since the beginning. And they're not. They've either been made weaker or stronger, fucking Tarrasque, or they are just, you know, totally opposite, you know, given a weakness to sunlight, even though most vampires aren't. Same thing with the whole silver thing. Silver bullets used to kill a werewolf. Well, werewolves weren't allergic to silver until about the time of movies as a way for them to weaken the creature and give them a visual aspect to complete the story. So you're able to take these ideas, like werewolves were never uh, weak to silver, so I'm going to get rid of that weakness. And now your players come in, they metagame a little, you know, oh, I know werewolves from knowledge. Yeah, we'll just make sure we have silver weapons. Well, nope, that didn't work. Magical only. Screw you. Yeah, that's the that's the fun thing about D&D play is that you can just kind of have it your way, you know, if you're building the world and, and structuring it as you see fit, you know. Uh, it literally says in you know several places in several of the core rulebooks, like, these, these are just guidelines. Feel free to adjust them, you know. So it's kind of cool to get a deeper, more, like, uh, realistic uh, view into, like, where these creatures come from if you do want to, you know, add a little spice or flavor, you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but that's what I have on my end for all this. Uh, well, um, once again, you know, he taught me a little bit there. You know, different uh, uh, learning about the uh, hippocampi, hippocamp, hippocampus, hippocampi. One, however the hell <laughs> that one was you know there, it was it was a little different it's kind of the info was a little sparse on my end on on that particular creature and, but uh yeah you uh definitely filled in a few blanks there on uh anybody tuning in wants to uh listen to me and chris do some more nerdy shit go check out my youtube channel it's uh all one word tater brain pod all one word go check it out also, if you have any questions, comments, or a topic you want to hear sooner rather than later, you can email us at monstersandmythos, all spelled out, at gmail.com. We are also on the socials, and I don't share too much, but I'll usually inform when a new episode drops. Uh, and if you want to say hi there, feel free. Uh, we are on Instagram as monsters.mythos my page didn't want to pull up uh we are on x formerly twitter as at monsters underscore mythos uh we are on threads as at monsters.mythos there and we have a facebook page of monsters and mythos using the ampersand sign uh I'm not as active on there. Uh, and you definitely want to use the ampersand sign when I was looking. If you type in monsters and mythos with ants spelled out, it takes you to a looks to be now defunct clothing line. Uh, and that's definitely not us. 
I am currently setting up a Patreon um, right now, just asking for $1 to say thanks, $5 uh, to help us uh, do pay for the hosting and some of the programs we use. And once we get five people at the $5 mark, we're going to look at maybe getting more specific with a character or finding creatures that are not in official D&D source books. However, thanks to everybody out there with wonderful imaginations, there are homebrew versions so where we could get an Anzu bird. And while it doesn't have a D&D equivalent, somebody out there has made one, and we can look at that and say, yes, we, you know, this works. Or no, based upon how this creature was described, I would put the strength here. I would give it this ability. I would take not give it that one. And break it down a little bit more. Uh, but we wouldn't start that till we get five because, uh, quite honestly, we got quite a few uh, pokers in the fire in just day-to-day life. So throwing on one more just definitely has to become worth it. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it has definitely uh, uh, been a fun ride uh, up to this point. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to... Uh, get there and and even uh, uh, hear some input from uh, some other people so hopefully you know uh, if you're tuning in shoot us an email let us know if there's something you want to hear sooner and rather than later and so thank you for listening and we will see you next time